Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, brought to you by the students of the University of Minnesota Medical School. I'm your host, David Wu, and in today's episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Anouk Stein of MDAI, a healthcare startup based in New York. Dr. Stein is a trained radiologist who later discovered her passion for computer science. In this episode, we talk about her journey to MDAI and her work in medical data annotation. We also talk about some of the exciting competitions she helps host, as well as the importance of external data validation. We will close with some great advice for our listeners from Dr. Stein on how to embrace this exciting new field of medicine today. Dr. Stein is a terrific teacher, and I learned a lot from her in this interview. I hope you'll enjoy. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Anouk Stein of MD.AI. And uh, hi, Dr. Stein. Thank you for coming on to the show today. Hi, David. My pleasure. And, and I was wondering, uh, could you tell us a bit about your path and how you eventually got involved in healthcare and AI? So I knew when I was in sixth grade that I wanted to be a doctor, but I also knew that I wanted to be on the machine part. And that actually didn't really exist when I wanted it. But because I was a sixth grader, I didn't realize that. So then eventually when I found radiology, I said, yes, machines, I like it. And um, I did that for a long time. And I really, I felt like there were so many things that I did manually that a computer could do better. And it really frustrated Mm. me. And I thought, well, I I need to help fix this. So I went back to school. I went to Columbia and I learned computer programming. After med school? Um, what? After yeah, med after. I, I, had a, I had a baby and I decided to stay home and take care of it, but I also wanted to keep learning. So I went back and I did night school and I learned computer programming wow. and then I did some AI courses. But at the time, this was in the early 2000s, AI consisted of Lisp, which I don't even know if you know, it's a really I, old I language. <laughs> and then uh, computer vision was like just straight up, you know, kind of huff transformations and and different um kind of the different filters that ai uses now we manually put on and try to play mm-hmm. with so we would just um kind of randomly put on filters whereas ai will put on 64 all at once and then learn by itself so mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting to see that progression i got involved with mdai because i I was looking through a course catalog in RSNA and I saw them and I saw that a friend of mine <laughs> had mm-hmm. started it and I reached uh, what's out to RSNA? him to see. I'm sorry? RSNA? RSNA is the Radiologic Society of North America. Oh, okay. Got it. Got um, it. It's the biggest gathering of radiologists and they actually, every year, the AI curriculum is larger and larger. Mm. So it's a big gathering of radiologists in Chicago and the first uh, time they had AI was just a couple of boots and eventually they had to move it to its own floor. Wow. And we just watched it grow and wow. grow every year. Yeah. So it's been really, really exciting. And so George Shi, who is a friend of mine was um, involved in MDAI and I reached out to him and he hired me. So I've been there for about three years. Mm. Are you still practicing medicine today? I just work for MDAI. I just, I just oh, do cool. medical AI now. Uh, I'm curious, uh, in, in your words, how would you describe what MD, like what does MDAI do? So we support people in their AI research. So we, su- we have um, uh, 
a, a browser-based app that helps people do large annotation projects. So we were part of these big uh, RSNA uh, annotation projects for uh, brain hemorrhage and pneumothorax and pneumonia. Um, and then people annotated on our platform and they were able to do, do it in a blinded way and then do, do adjudication at the end. And then we also have a way to put models directly into the UI, like right on your browser and then run the models in your browser. So that's what we're mostly, we're supporting um, kind of research efforts in AI. Oh, okay, I see. Um, I'm curious, what got you interested in MDAI like versus you know, a traditional like working in clinic or like, was it hard to make that decision? Um, <laughs> I actually did, I actually uh, did a course from uh, the Stanford course on designing your life. Right? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you've heard of it. On designing your life? Yeah. Um, no, I haven't. It's by two engineers from Apple. It is the mm -hmm. most popular course in Stanford, I believe. Uh, or at least one of the most popular ones. So they put out a book. So I did every exercise in that book and it turned mm -hmm. out the perfect job for me was at MDI after Whoa. I went to so it wasn't I'm kind of curious now. I, I kinda, maybe I should take this course. Um, they have some data because they're, you know, at Stanford, they actually did some data on the students taking that course and uh, they made more money. <laughs> Is it... So is this course like anyone can take it or is it specifically yeah. if you're people interested in tech? Uh, anyone. It's for really absolutely anything you want to do. It's how to design your life and they have a new one of designing your career. Wow. Uh, could, you, could you talk a bit more about this? I'm actually I'm very curious. <laughs> um, it has you kind of go through the things that you value, the things that you're good at. It's it's. I mean, it sounds so simple when I describe it, but it's very, very powerful the way that they present it. And they have a lot of weight behind them because they mm -hmm. are Stanford professors and they did work at, at um, really big tech firms. But I, they have you just explore crazy things. So I designed three jobs that really don't exist that were absolutely insane, very much like my exploration in sixth grade mm. of wanting to be a doctor that only worked with machines when that didn't <laughs> exist. Yeah, of course. Could you talk a bit more about that too? Like that feels very sci-fi, you know, I feel like it's like a Ray Bradbury thing, you know, where you want to like be a doctor, but work with machines. Like how did that desire emerge? Um, well, I didn't know it then, but um, I was neurodiverse. I am neurodiverse mm -hmm. and I didn't want to work with patients, but I loved medicine. I loved everything about biology. And I thought, well, if, if you don't work with patients, what's left? And then that was machines. Mm -hmm. And it then, of course, then by the time I finished medical school, like, you know, radiology was really exciting and interesting profession. Mm. I find it interesting, too, with, uh, you know, we're talking about AI and medicine. And a lot of people say, oh, AI is going to, you know, remove so many jobs, or especially radiologists, their jobs are in peril. But I find that actually radiologists seem to be the ones who embrace AI the most. I feel like they're the oh, most excited yeah. about it. Oh, yeah. There's really, yeah, I, I think because we see it, you know, like radiologists spend a lot of time um, measuring nodules, whereas 
you know, that's something if you pointed out a machine should be able to do, right? You shouldn't mm -hmm. have to kind of measure each thing. And then there, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that machines could support people. Mm -hmm. So there's an eye tracking technology where when they gave it to um, junior radiologists, radiology residents, and they had them, they, they looked at like, where did they look and linger for a little bit longer? And then they circled those areas. And they found that the radiologists found a few, like some percentage of more nodules after looking at the areas that they themselves had spent more time looking at. Wait, could you say that finding it one more time? So, so they would look at, at chest x-rays and mm -hmm. decide if there was a nodule or not, mm -hmm. right? And the, the, but they were wearing these, these cameras, right? For eye yeah. gauge or that was on the monitor. Yeah. And then when the AI looked at where was their gaze for more than a few microseconds uh, uh -huh. and just circled those areas of where they had looked a little bit longer than usual, and then they gave it back to them and said, okay, now reassess it by looking at these areas. They found more nodules. That's so, so cool. So they had seen it and they discounted it. Wow. It's like their instinct. Yeah. Yeah. And, wow. and the other thing that AI can do, like they have this big Google retina um, project. And just for kicks, they decide to say, well, what else can we see from the retina? And they could tell sex which you're not supposed to be able to tell. They could oh, tell- Oh, I heard about the, that, yeah, uh-huh. Kind of blood pressure, if it was in the high range or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and they mm -hmm. could tell the um, glucose level over time, right? Um, within a certain range. None of that, you sh like a human can tell from a retina scan. Yeah, yeah. So this is how I imagine that AI can really support physicians and radiologists in the future. And, mm. and not to replace us because it, it's not going to replace us because there are just too many edge cases, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you need the humans there, but it can make us superhuman. It could turn mm -hmm. us into X-Men mm -hmm. and make us much better. Yeah, I feel like technology has been at the heart of medicine for so long. You know, like uh, I think stethoscopes were invented in like the, the early 1800s. And actually, interestingly, uh, in the, when they were first invented, a lot of people were against it. They're like, oh, stethoscopes, you know, this, you should listen to the heart like, with your ear or something. You know, they're like, this That's isn't so. human. You know, this is like, really? you know, we're introducing these kind of technology, these, uh, you know, they just said it was kind of artificial or they kind of removed the human touch. But now it's like a central part of, of medicine. And, um, you know, maybe perhaps with machine learning, it'll be like that too. Where right now we think uh, some people are a little uncomfortable with it, but I'm sure in the future, you know, it'll be as routine as, I don't know, getting like an x-ray or an ultrasound, you know, like just kind of having that AI augmentation or the help, the assistance of AI. That's a, that's a great uh, metaphor, a great way of looking at it. I mean, they say it's technology until it works and then it's just has a specific name. So mm -hmm. a microwave isn't technology it works. So it's a mm -hmm. microwave, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So once AI really works, it will have a very specific name that will be just like, um, you know, triager and will any exam like, we're there like, yet? A, like a neuro, like a bleed in the head will go to the top of the list of things that radiologists need mm. to read. Do you think we're there yet? Um, well, there are a lot of FDA approved algorithms already and some in mm -hmm. clinical use. Um, right now, there's some questions around next steps. 
So right now you have algorithms that will pick out studies that should go to the top of the list that are more urgent. Mm. What if different algorithms fight with each other for that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, like who wins? So that's like the next level of, of questioning about it, which is really, so that's how you know that it's um, robust if you're already asking that next level of questions. Mm. Yeah, I remember hearing that uh, like viz.ai, they recently came out with like the first uh, Medicare approved, uh, like for stroke imaging or something where like, you know, if they saw like a, a clot, like it would send it to the top of the list kind of thing. Right. And um, so are you, I guess are you saying like, uh, if are other people going to enter the market and kind of come up with like competitor, competitor algorithms? Well, you have a different algorithm looking at um, maybe carotid artery dissection and it said, oh, I, th I think I see one. So it moves that one to the top and which one gets to the top. And, and every time you put one thing on the top, you're moving something else down. Mm -hmm. So then it's almost like you need a super algorithm to kind of decide, well, what's the real priority? Would that be the radiologist? <laughs> Um, well, they don't know it until they see it, right? Uh, so if you have, you have a, a, one is a stroke, one is a hemorrhage, one is a carotid artery dissection, um, and they're all vying for like spaces at the top of the list, maybe mm -hmm. the, um, so I'm making this up, but maybe there could be like an overall algorithm that says, well, in the order of, of you know, like, how much do you suspect this is a problem? Okay, you think it's 100% a problem, well, you go up and mm -hmm. this algorithm only thinks this problem is 40%, but then you uh, have to weigh it against how yeah. serious is them. Yeah, it's like a, a meta algorithm. A meta algorithm, for example. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Wow. This is a lot, a lot to think about. And so for MD.AI, I guess what you guys do is you help prepare the data sets for these algorithms, right? Yeah, we help prepare them and we also help in validation. So mm -hmm. after a model is, is trained, you know, you have to test it. You have to test it on outside data. You have to, you know, you, have, you need a way to really visualize your predictions. Yeah, do you wanna talk more about uh, external validation or just validation of data in general? So that's one of the big challenges now, because in order to really do that, you have to hold aside some data that your algorithm never sees. And that's usually hard because it's, it's hard to get data, it's hard to get annotated data. Mm -hmm. So out of the, so we, I had sent you two um, studies. Yeah. And so for one of them, and this was actually from uh, 2019, so there's new data since then, but they looked at over 500 studies and only 6% had external mm. validation, which means that most of them were just kind of proof of concepts and not really well tested. And so many times it's, it's really easy to overtrain. And I've done it myself where, you know, I'm so excited, I'm getting 97, 98% accuracy on the set that I'm training. And when I give it new data, it's, it just plunges, right? Mm. Um, is that new data from um, from the same source as where the old data came from, you know, or is it like from a different institution? From like a, a different diff source, yeah. So a different. Oh, wow. So I have. I'm working with public data, mm -hmm. so I'll 
there's some public data that I'll hold aside and I won't train it on. And then I'll use that for testing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so often I'm dejected because my 98% algorithm is kind of oh. caving with new data. So that's why it's re- so that's why it's really, really important to have the external validation. And then um, Yao et al, they looked at, at neuro exams and they had 155 studies and only 16 out of that whole set was also had external validation. So again, wow. it was a lot of proof of concept stuff. And they said more discouragingly, like a third of them only used a hundred exams and 80% used less than a thousand exams. Now they're wow. really large, you know, more and more, there are large data sets. Um, so I would encourage people to do that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about practical um, machine learning. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't have a PhD, I'm not an expert, but the two things that I really like that I think are accessible to anyone with an interest in in AI are um, the fast.ai course. Are you familiar with that? I've heard about it, yeah, yeah. All right, so it's it's amazing. It's a series of of lectures and um, lots of documentation, lots of notebooks and I use that <laughs> to make actual AI. So I feed public oh, wow. data into it. And it's so easy that, you know, like without having a PhD, you can, you can make like real algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that I love is Facebook Detectron. It's an oh, open source. Okay. Yeah, it works on Colab. They have a, um, they have a, a, a sample notebook that shows you how to detect balloons on an image, right? Mm-hmm. Again, really easy, really easy code to, to read, easy to understand. So I took that same exact notebook and instead of feeding it in pictures of balloons, I fed it in pictures of CT scans with boxes around the kidney. Mm-hmm. So I exchanged balloons for kidneys. That's great. I, yeah. <laughs> That's and, um, and there was a course at the recent RSNA using Detectron 2 in exactly that way. Uh-huh. To, um, there are some annotated, there's public, publicly accessible annotated data. Mm-hmm. Um, the TCIA is where you can find most of it. And at the RSNA course, they, um, they use Facebook Detectron to do it, and they and the guy who who and I, I his name escapes me, but he tweeted about it. So then I looked it up and I tried it myself, um, and it was so fast, so fun, and it worked. Wow! Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, so that's something that that really a beginner could do. You gather the data uh, from TCIA; they have annotated data sets. You mm-hmm. put that on your Google Drive, the feed it. TCIA into is the Cancer Imaging Archive. Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Um, and then use the sample notebook from Facebook Detectron to to work with. Wow, that right? that makes it it sounds so easy now. I, I you know it's like I kind of want to try that. One of the one of the top people, one of the grandmasters at do you know Kegel? Oh, the is that a competition? It's a competition. So they, so that's where the RSNA puts up all their competitions and Sim mm-hmm. also had several competitions there. And a grandmaster is someone who's just super expert has won a lot of competitions. Um, one of the top people there 
is a radiology resident. What? Yes. Wow. Yes. Oh, oh fantastic. God. And so yeah. Cool. Yeah. And and some of the we got to meet some of the other winners. Um, this was for the um, brain hemorrhage hemorrhage challenge. Mm-hmm. And two of the top ten came from a, a company that did baseball statistics for betting. <laughs> and the company allowed them to do a certain amount of time on any project they wanted. They knew yeah. nothing about medicine. They just had this time that they were given and, and like some computer, some money for, for so cool. uh, to be used. And they won. Wow. So, so yeah, so don't oh think that you need to have a PhD or any special knowledge. You need to have interest and know some Python. <laughs> yeah, definitely Python. <laughs> That's something I've been trying to learn, but oh man, it's I just need to practice more. <laughs> My favorite Python course on Kaggle. Mm-hmm. Kaggle has their own mini course on Python. So I would suggest that a beginner start there. I feel like I could prepare like just an appendix for this interview of all the <laughs> these great resources that you've been talking about. I'm actually going to start writing that down right now. So Kaggle, um, what was it called? The Python? Um, it's a Python tutorial. Okay. And I've done it myself. It's really nice. It really goes through um, all the steps. And it's it's exactly what you need to know for Kaggle. Mm. So I got that down. I got the fast.ai. Fast.ai and and, uh, Facebook Facebook. Detectron. I never would have thought Facebook would have created something like this, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's great. It's actually Detectron 2. It's already on the okay, okay. Version, so, yeah. Facebook Detectron 2. I'll look into those. And I will release that in the show notes. So for our listeners who are curious, this would be something, uh, you know, something cool to look into. Great, great. And uh, we were talking earlier about external validation. I was wondering, like, kind of just for our newer listeners, like, could you define external validation? Like how, in your words, like, how would you define what external validation is and why is it important? So when you're, when you're training on a data set, um, it's really easy to overfit. And what mm-hmm. overfitting means is that it's not actually learning what you think it's learning. It's just memorizing that specific data. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that it seems like it's doing well on the test set because the test set is similar to the training set. Mm-hmm. External validation means taking something completely different. So for example, with CT scans, if you, um, if you only train on one slice thickness, it won't really work well for other slice thicknesses. Oh, whoa. Because wow. think about it, right? If you have really thin slices on a CT, you're gonna have a lot of noise, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you have thicker slices, you'll have, it'll be much smoother. Yeah. So if you train something, on the smooth ones, it won't know how to interpret the noise. Whoa. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so, that makes sense. Yeah, so you may not even know that that your data set is uniform in that way until you have external data. If so you, for like TCIA data, that data that you get from TCIA, is it like a uniform homogenous kind of data or is it all like different slice thicknesses, different formats, you know? 
if you take it from different data sets, it'll be a little bit different. Oh, okay, okay. Um, it may not, you know, you may have to go beyond public data to really get a diverse set. Mm -hmm. um, if you're looking at, say you're, you're training um, an AMI model and you're at, in Arizona, I'm in Arizona. So you're in Arizona mm -hmm. and you have CTs just from Arizona hospitals and there are lots and lots of nodules, but it's all from valley fever. Right, because that's really high here, Cox. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, so that may not <laughs> really work if now you give it data from another state. Oh my, that makes so much sense! Wow. So that's why it's really, you know, it's it's there are a lot of biases that you don't know about. So so it's it's kind of disease bias, um, instrumentation bias, mm. and then also just you know maybe the maybe you're biased in a certain age group or right yeah yeah or like ses like socioeconomic status depending on where the hospital is that you collected the data absolutely absolutely and and it may not generalize now there there is a there is some controversy over generalization so if you have something that works really well um for tb but it's very specific to the parts of the world where TV is prevalent. Well, maybe that's good. You know, maybe yeah, you should yeah. generalize, right? Maybe you don't, maybe you want something that's like, because once you generalize, it's going to be meh everywhere mm -hmm, rather than mm -hmm, maybe something mm -hmm. that is very specific and it's good for that purpose, right? Mm -hmm. So if you say, well, this algorithm will work if you have this slice thickness, maybe that's fine. Yeah, and we just got to make sure that the, the data we feed it like is in that slice thickness, right? Right, right. Mm. And so, and that's what external validation will help you see maybe the, the biases or the limitations in your own data. Mm. But also, you know, help you to see if you're overfitting. Mm. So yeah, I guess with that in mind, like how do you, because, you know, I'd say external validation is a good thing, but how do you know you know, you were talking earlier about the TB example, and maybe it's good to have a bit more of like a specific or, you know, kind of a narrow algorithm. And how do you, I feel like there's a balance between, you know, you want to be really diligent with your external validation, but like, maybe you don't want to, I don't know, kind of shoot yourself in the foot maybe by having it generalized too much, you know, is, is there like a balance right. that you need to find? There is, there is. And, and you can't really take every edge case um, into effect. Like if you, if someone's had spinal surgery and they have metal in their spine, that's going to create so much noise and distortion. It, it might be hard for any algorithm. And you may just say, well, we, we can't read those with AI just yet, mm -hmm. or we can't read those with my particular algorithm. But, you know, if, you know, in the case of these studies where a third of them had less than a hundred exams, if you then did it on external data, you'd, you'd really see that no matter how great, you know, 90, a great percent accuracy you had, well, it's it's too small, yeah, um, yeah. right, to be a legitimate algorithm. So that's what, what external data will do for you. Yeah. Like, I feel like with those, you know, small data sets and where you, if you're not externally validating, it's just kind of like, oh, like here, I'm going to like draw the box and I'm going to check it. You know what I mean? It's like, you're kind of like setting your own 
benchmarks knowing like i don't right. know it seems very insular See, that, that's it yeah. yeah and sim now has an effort where they're letting people um upload their models and then get reviews on them what, what's sim sim is a society for informatics and medicine oh, okay and they're actually have it's kind of a competition now it's going on until i think march 15th so mm -hmm. you can load your model and have it evaluated uh they think they have a few external data sets, but you can have it evaluated by other experts. Oh, wow. And, and is it like for certain, you know, certain use cases, you know, like a one model would be for, I don't know, like lung CTs, you know? Um, yeah, it's for, it's for medical models. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's, an, that's something going on right now. Oh, are you participating in it? Um, we're hosting it. Yeah. Oh, is we MD, MDAI? Yeah. Oh, cool. Society for Informatics and Medicine. Yeah. Uh, that actually leads me to my next question. I was wondering, uh, can you tell us about any cool projects or significant accomplishments from MDAI? The, probably the coolest thing, well, besides what's going on now with SIM, were, are some of the uh, big competitions that we've been involved in with SIM and with RSNA. Um, and just to work with Kegel was so amazing. There were people, there were teams from all over the world submitting algorithms and all, and the top 10 in each category were, were open, right? So that other mm -hmm. people can use them and build on oh, them. Wow. So that was really exciting. Mm -hmm. So does MDAI do any, um, do you guys code any algorithms of your own too, or? Well, we're really there to support other researchers, mm -hmm. um, but you know, for fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Small things for fun. Wow. And, and I'm curious, like, what is the typical, um, you know, like, are your clients or are your customers normally normally like large healthcare institutions or research labs? Yeah, we have. They're large research labs from all over the world, and we have a, a bunch of big pharma companies. Uh, so like, will they come to you and be like, oh, we'd like to get this data annotated. Can you help us out with that? Or, um, usually they lease our platform and they have their own annotators. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I should have actually, one of my friends specialized what they're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of my friends actually just signed up to be an annotator for you guys. Dude, really? Yeah. <laughs> I think she's really enjoying it. Maybe, maybe this will be a little plug for MDAI annotators, but, um, yeah, like I think she's getting paid 50 cents a liver um, to, yep. you know, draw a box around a liver. And she says she likes to do it when, uh, you know, she's like kind of done studying for the day. She's watching Netflix. She'll put on a show and then she'll just kind of <laughs> annotate livers while she's watching the show. And uh, oh, that's so funny. You know, she says like, oh, if it means I could eat out a few more times a week, then I'm, I'm in. <laughs> that's so funny. It's hip it gets hypnotic after yeah. a while. And she says it's like a nice way for her to review her anatomy too. Oh, that's great. That's good yeah. to hear. She's a first year med student. So. Oh yeah, perfect. Yeah. perfect. <laughs> so do you guys have like an army of annotators? We do. Uh, we have annotators on every continent except Antarctica. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. When are you guys going to expand to Antarctica? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, that's always the whole <laughs> So is it like in the thousands, you know, in the no, hundreds? No, 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 no. 
Oh, okay. So do they come to you? Like, how do you guys have to advertise for annotators? Or? Um, mostly it's people coming to us. Medical students or um, a lot of A lot of radiologists come wow. to us, radiology residents, and then some med students. Mm. So I went to uh, Downstate in Brooklyn and mm -hmm. I got a bunch of the students from Downstate to annotate for us. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, soon uh, you'll have a bunch of University of Minnesota med students too. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, I was wondering if, if you could talk more about, uh, you know, what's a typical day like working for MDAI as a, so you, you were a radiologist, but now you're working for industry. I feel like a lot of, uh, you know, my classmates are very curious about like, what is it like to work in industry, but with like uh, clinical training? Um, I find that I have a unique perspective mm -hmm. because there are hard and easy problems in every field, mm -hmm. right? And that's part of knowledge is to understand like what's an easy problem that you can solve and what's a hard problem that really is going to take a lot of resources. So I feel like I can speak at the intersection of medicine and um, the coding development world. So I definitely know what's an easy and hard problem in medicine, right? So some problems are like so easy, they're really not really worth solving. And there's kind of that sweet spot there. And I feel like I can, I can differentiate that. Mm. But then I can also look, I can put on my computer science hat and say, oh, well, some of those problems might be pretty you know, doable to solve with computer science and some really won't be. Um, so that for me is a really interesting part of the job. Mm. Can you give us an example of like an easy problem versus a hard problem? So, um, so say for radiology, right? An easy problem is to um, find nodules. Right, and that's something you'd want them to find, right? And it's actually turns out on the computer science side that that's doable. A hard problem, um, you know, that that would be kind of taking a lot of things. Like if you if you're trying to take the radiology and then merge that with some of the clinical signs mm. to decide what to do next or or what's um, you know, a reasonable differential diagnosis, that might be much harder. Kind of more like the meta algorithms that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Which kind of problems do you prefer working on or which ones do you like more? <laughs> I'm finding that I really, every time, I mean, MDAI started because the two founders were in a Kegel competition and they had to annotate to get more data and they realized they, were, they didn't like the annotation tool, so they had to build it. So I started out playing with fast AI and with uh, Detectron 2, and I made some algorithms to you know, kind of find the stomach and they were, did so-so. And what I realized was, well, I really need to take a step back because we need to have algorithms that look at the data because if you're, like I was, I was evaluating one algorithm for aorta. 
it would look for aorta in ridiculous places. So it would put boxes in the brain, right? Uh So that's a false positive. But it's like, well, why is it even being given an image of the brain to work on? Mm -hmm. Right? So then that's the step. So then you take a step back and you say, well, you know, we really the first thing we do have to do is, is kind of like what you're saying, these meta algorithms is let's separate out the data and only give the algorithm things that even make sense. Mm-hmm, now I'm mm-hmm. really interested in algorithms that look at an image and say, well, where are the slices that are just abdomen? And now let's grab those and present that to the, the liver algorithm or the spleen algorithm. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so that's what I'm working on now is more kind of like data curation mm-hmm. um, because it, t- it turns out like that seems like the easy part and, and it's not. It turns oh, out I not. feel like it's probably one of the most important parts, you know, to like, you're almost like providing the context for it. Yeah. You know? And one of, one of the problems is with anonymization, right? For HIPAA, it's so important to anonymize oh, yeah. exams before you can yeah. use them, especially like we have on a, on a browser. So it has to be anonymized is that people like they go scorched earth and they take everything out, like even the stuff that you need that really isn't, isn't uh-huh. PHI that could help you. Like what kind of an exam is this? Or does it have contrast? Oh, man. oh really? Right? So, oh, yikes. yeah. So it's like wiped clean to within an inch of its life. And wow. then now I'm interested in algorithms that, that go back and tell you, well, like, does it have contrast? What kind it's of- It's like you don't even know what you're getting. RCT? Yeah. Wow. Wow. I was wondering if you could tell us more about the story of how you guys got started. I remember you said one, there's two co-founders. One is George. So George Shi and uh, Leon Shen, Mm -hmm. they, uh, they're both radiologists and they decided to, to do a Kegel competition together. And it was finding uh, lung nodules. And in order to supplement the data, which is allowed, they re-annotated it. Um, but they just, they just really did not like the annotation tools available. Mm-hmm. And they decided that, and they actually did pretty well. I think they got in the top 11. Um, and they said, well, if, if we need that, who else needs that? Mm-hmm. And that's how they formed MDAI uh, and built it, built it for the competition and then started a company out of that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Who ended up winning that time? Was it uh, some of those those baseball stats guys? Or? <laughs> uh, that was that was before I joined MDAI, so I'm not sure, and I don't mm. think the baseball guys had heard about it yet. Oh, I see. That was how are the uh, how are the Kegel competitions now? You know, are they very like like it's very competitive? You know, like what? Very yeah, what competitive. Are they like? Very competitive. Um, large, large, like thousands of teams from all over the world wow and yeah yeah they have is there like a cash prize like what you know what's the incentive yeah Yeah. they're like yeah i think like thirty thousand in total for the last one from rsna yeah i mean nice but i talked to some people like if you weren't the first prize winner a lot of people had sometimes spent more money on compute time than the actual prize itself Really, but you know, but that's not the point. The point was really, you know, to get the practice, to get the kudos, yeah. get the acclaim. 
Mm. Wow. That's awesome that like thousands of, you guys get thousands of contestants. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Really. It's really popular. And they're not just in the medical field. They're all different fields. I was surprised how many people had no medical background at all. But it's, wow. it's a really cooperative community. So if you look at the forums on Kegel, I mean, people are, are always posting, you know, helpful code, helpful information about radiology, expert uh, insights. Mm-hmm. So that, think, that hasn't really been a problem. Do you think other fields of medicine are as, I feel like radiology seems very eager about, you know, the future of medicine and AI, and they're very actively embracing it. You know, you have these cool conferences and competitions. Do you think other medical specialties are as, um, you know, as eager, or jazz, or, you know, as eager about it? Ophthalmology is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're really psyched. And dermatology too. Huh. So do Sim you, had a dermatology competition. I'm, I'm curious to hear your personal thought. Like, do you think this is a, more so a function of like the personality types of the people who go into these specialties? Or <laughs> is it due to the problems that the specialties have? You know, like, I feel like with dermatology, a lot of it is kind of like recognition anyways. You know, you look at what the lesion looks like, ophthalmology with the retinal scans. I think, I think it's, that's exactly it. I think that's exactly it because those are all visual Mm -hmm. um, tasks, radiology, ophthalmology, and dermatology. So they lend themselves really well to, you know, I don't know if you've seen Silicon Valley to hot dog, not hot dog. <laughs> so, I haven't seen right, so really, well, a, you know, kind of a, a sorting type of algorithm. Mm -hmm. mm. So, but you're right that a, a visual field would be, would be, more likely to use it, more likely to embrace it. So what One about the, the other problems with, with like, and visually you can also kind of right away see if the machine is right or not. Mm -hmm. So they tried to look at, um, they looked at people coming into the ICU and whether or not they had asthma if that had any effect on their outcome, right? Because people with asthma coming into the ICU who need to be intubated shouldn't really do that well right? Because they have a pre-existing condition. Yeah. They found the opposite. They found that actually people with asthma did better than most. So that didn't make any sense. Like medically, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So when they looked deeper, they found out that, well, the, the staff were already alert to the risk with asthma. So they paid more attention to those patients. <laughs> so they got a different level of treatment and that's all you were measuring. <laughs> Uh -huh. So that's why, be, and then there's this thing about discoverable AI, right? So with, with imaging, you know, if it's, if it's the retina or, or the skin or radiology, you can double check it and see if it's correct or not. When the AI is predicting things about the future, that's, that's much harder because you can't really see like, what is it making its decisions on? Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I was actually, I was going to ask, like, why do you think it hasn't gone into other specialties? But I guess that makes sense because I guess they're not as visual, right? They're not as visual. Yeah. You, until, the, until the algorithm really has a very good way to tell you what its thought process is, that's going to mm. be the end of it. Wow. 
And that actually kind of segues into my next question, which is, uh, which we've already kind of talked about, but uh, what do you think, and this is a question we ask every guest. So what do you think the future of AI and medicine will look like in 10 to 20 years? I think it's going to be so seamless, you're not even going to notice it because it's going to be supporting radiologists. So it will be like a little nudge, like, oh, did you see that? Did you, did you take a look at that? And it was also like, they've done studies where people obviously don't do as well at the end of the day or when they're tired or on Friday afternoon. And so say that Monday kind of mid-morning would be your absolute peak performance, right? When mm -hmm. you're not sick, you're not tired, you're, yeah. right? So it would, all of a sudden it would take you to your peak performance all mm -hmm. the time. Whoa. And that would be, right? That's the promise of AI. Yeah. It's like, don't replace me. Make me the best of who I can be. Mm -hmm. And maybe better. And maybe <laughs> train me faster so that, you know, with AI, maybe I can look at a nuclear medicine study without having to do, you know, a mini fellowship. I can just start right away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? So that's the promise is to make us better, to make us learn faster. Wow. So it's almost like we, uh, I find it poetic to think that it's like we are pushing the limits of AI, but then in return, AI is kind of pushing the limits of us, you know, because yeah. if we are going to be performing at our Monday mid-morning peak performance <laughs> all week, I, right? I, I'm i almost frightened, you know, like, oh man, like, because it's like, I don't know, I feel like performance is one of those things where it's, it's tough to be at your A game 100% of the time. And just like self-driving cars, like right now you have partially self-driving cars, right? If mm -hmm. you steer out of the lane a little bit, it will tell you. Yeah. It will bump you back if you, right? Some of the cars and, and even like from three years ago, the cars would bump you back into the lane. And that's how I see AI with medicine. Like if you maybe you miss something, it'll bump you back into your, your lane of being, you know, at your peak and seeing things. Mm. Wow. That's a cool thought. Well, you're a very good listener, David. I, I really appreciate that. Oh, thanks. Insightful. Um, this is another question that we ask all of our guests, and it's uh, this one's a bit more fun. It's uh, what advice would you give to yourself in your twenties? Um. Wow, that's a that's a, a hard one. Um, <laughs> but I think maybe I would have learned about computers much earlier. Mm, maybe mm. I would have taken a, a minor in uh, computer programming in my twenties. Like in college? Yeah, yeah. What, what did you study in college? <laughs> Biochemistry. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, and finally, uh, our, our last question is, uh, any advice for med students or early career physicians who are entering this rapidly changing field of AI and medicine? Learn Python. Mm -hmm. Learn Python, absolutely, it's essential. There, you, you really can't go anywhere without it. And it's, this, it's the um, like computer language that's taking over the world. Really? Yeah, it's the, I mean, schools are teaching it now as like the first language. It's really easy to learn, it's accessible. And they're even teaching it in business schools. Wow. Because yeah, Python kind of takes a spreadsheet and makes it really, really powerful. 
Mm. I was wondering, yeah, could you like talk more about that? Because you know, I've tried learning Python, and I, I'm like, I'm I'm glad to hear that it's like it's growing so fast. Um, but I do know it's like a pretty old language, right? It is, but they've made a lot of uh, modifications to it. One of the most interesting parts of Python, and the important part that you need for machine learning, is pandas. P-A-N-D-A-S, like the panda bear. It creates data frames and data frames are spreadsheets. And then with that, you can do almost any kind of data gathering, grouping um, and aggregation that you need. So that's, that. I use that all day long, a lot of it. Mm. That would be the most important thing to learn in, in Python or Pandas. I got to do that. I will check out the Kaggle Python tutorial as well as Fast.ai, Facebook det Detectron. You know, a lot of things to, to look at. Great, great. And uh, yeah, um, I feel like I learned a lot from you so much today. Thank you so much, Anouk. Um, or Dr. Stein, I should say. I, I applaud your interest in AI and, and the dedication you've shown into making a podcast like this in spite of your very busy schedule. Yeah, I, I, it's been tough. Um, <laughs> definitely hard to balance this with school. But I, you know, I feel like with every interview, every time I talk to someone new, it's like, oh, okay, this is why I'm doing it. You know, it's because it's so fun meeting um, people like you who are in the industry and like doing something they're passionate about. And it's really cool, like learning from you because I, I you know, in med school, I feel like we, we learn from our lecturers who are very passionate about, you know, teaching, but we don't really learn from doctors who, who've gone on to do other things, you know? So Great. thank you so much, Dr. Stein, for it's been you know, my coming pleasure. on to the show. And uh, any, any last words you want to say? Um, no. No, you're doing it right. You're you're on the right path. Oh, thank you. <laughs>